Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In true crime, there are stories and there are sagas. True crime stories tend to end with a murder. True crime sagas, death is just the beginning. That's why The Staircase endures as one of the most gripping sagas of all time and why a podcast diving into the limited Max original series was so essential. Now there's love and death, a new Max original limited series created by TV legend David E. Kelly and starring the brilliant Elizabeth Olsen. It's a murder mystery, all right. But the mystery isn't who. It's why. Why did a Texas housewife named Candy Montgomery pick up an axe and kill And why does this murder case still fascinate us more than 40 years later? Find out in the new official Love and Death podcast with me, Nancy Miller, beginning April 27th. I'll go behind the scenes of the highly anticipated limited series with the cast and creatives, including writer and creator David E. Kelly, executive producer and director Leslie Lincoln-Glatter, series stars Elizabeth Olsen and Jesse Plemons. Plus, we'll hear from some of the best crime writers in all of Texas on why the Candy Montgomery saga could only have happened in the Lone Star State. The official Love and Death podcast is produced by HBO Max and Texas Monthly Studio. We've dropped the first episode of the Love and Death podcast right here. So watch the show, then listen to the first episode and subscribe to the official Love and Death podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Man, they get to go to their jobs and live in their careers and we just stay home and supposed to be enough look at our kids right now on that jungle gym it is human nature to take risks to go for something with a little thrill at the risk of falling all candy montgomery wanted was a little thrill so how did she end up at the center of one of the biggest most brutal murders in modern texas history that's at the heart of love and death a riveting seven-episode Max Original limited series. And this is the official Love & Death podcast, an HBO Max production in partnership with Texas Monthly Studio, the in-house agency for Texas Monthly. I'm your host, Nancy Miller, a journalist who loves twisty, turny true crime storytelling. And we have a doozy with Love & Death, a series drawn from the 1984 Texas Monthly feature and the gripping book, Evidence of Love, written by Jim Atkinson and John Bloom. So if you think you know the Candy Montgomery saga, trust me, you don't. There's so much more to this story, which is why after each episode of the series, we'll do a deep dive with the phenomenal cast and brilliant minds behind the show, along with top Texas Monthly editors. For this first episode, I'm speaking with the two TV titans who brought love and death to life. Series writer and creator David E. Kelly and series executive producer and director Leslie Linka-Glatter. Later in the podcast, we'll chat with the series star Elizabeth Olsen on why she wanted to play Candy Montgomery. We'll also hear from Texas Monthly executive editor Skip Hollinsworth about why this strange suburban murder saga could only happen in Texas. Remember, this is a companion podcast. We've done our best to not reveal too much too soon, but we do discuss key details from each episode. So go watch, then listen. Are you ready? Let's set the scene. Wiley, Texas, Friday the 13th, June 1980. And from the very first episode, we see something very bad and very violent has happened. Bloody handprints on a bathroom wall. Blood spatter on a tiled floor. What happened? Who did it? And why? To understand that, we go back in time two years to where this bewildering saga started. Back to 1978 in a bedroom community north of Dallas, Texas, where Candy Montgomery, a wife, mother, and first-row singer in the church choir, appears to have the picture-perfect life. But something's missing. She craves, what's the word she uses? Fireworks. And she gets a whiff of it with Alan Gore, the husband of her church friend, Betty Gore. 
What happens next is an affair so meticulously planned. What could possibly go wrong? But go wrong it does. Very wrong. And this is just the beginning. So let's kick things off with series creator and writer David E. Kelly and series executive producer and director Leslie Linka-Gladder. Welcome, Leslie Linka-Gladder and David E. Kelly, to the first episode of the Love and Death Companion podcast. Thank We're you. thrilled to be here. Cool. Yes, we are. <laughs> so let's kick things off. You've both had long, successful careers in television and could choose any project you wanted. So why this story? Well, between Leslie and myself, we probably have about 70 years worth of television <laughs> making, and we have never worked together. So at, at, at the, the original genesis was excitement of getting to work together. Um, beyond that, I think when you consider a series, the first question in any series is why this one? And what you're looking for is gripping subject matter and compelling characters. And this one just checked off all those boxes. It's a story that's, that would be difficult to make up if you tried. Um, <laughs> obviously, a great deal of um, drama, horror, even depravity. But what drew me to it, and I think Leslie in the end, was the pathology of kindness and empathy and love underneath this this very uh, horrific drama. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I have to say, with our 70 years of shared mutual experience, I have always wanted to work with David. And the fact that it is this particular story that brought us together, I can't tell you what that means to me. And absolutely, if it wasn't true, you couldn't make it up. This is such a case of real life is stranger than fiction, and things are not what they appear to be. And, you know, I love the fact that it's very bucolic on the surface, yeah. but what's underneath is a whole different story. And I read those two stories, the two Texas Monthly articles, and and we, I think at the same time, David read the book after reading mm -hmm. those articles and talking, and like, oh my goodness, I, I just wanted to be part of telling this story with David. So you both read the source mm -hmm. material, and then what happens? You, how did you connect and start adapting the characters in the story? Well, we first read the uh, the articles in the book, so we knew what the subject matter was. We knew who the characters were. So that, as in terms of the process, you write the scripts, and we go back and forth and give notes on that. We craft the characters. And uh, once it's in script form and once we're satisfied with that, then I kind of it's, uh, I, I feel like the quarterback who hands the ball to someone else and says, go, run with it. In this case, I handed it to Leslie. And, um, you know, the casting process, I think the, the first big move we made um, was casting Lizzie. And um, she just turned out to inhabit this candy character in so many um, rich and compelling ways. You got her humanity. Um, you got her complexity. Um, at the end of the day, um, that's what you're looking to craft, a story and people that, that will cause your audience to gravitate and lean in. Well, all I can say is we are in a team sport, and I never want to be the smartest person in the room, but I want to be in the room with the smartest people. And certainly with David, I got to be in that room. David writes characters that are real with flesh and bone and hearts and souls on the page. You know, and then I think we cast it well so they come to life. I mean, it's a true ensemble. You have your, your stars, but you have this ensemble cast with Lily Rabe, Jesse Plemons. How do you know these people are going to connect? Ooh, I wish there was a, a magic crystal ball yeah. that you could look at and know that they were going to connect. I mean, you hope you've made the best possible decisions. And... I think it's part of how you set up the beginning. Like one of the things we did with, with, that's why I say it's such a team sport, we had an amazing crew. You know, 
And uh, Sunday Stevens, who was our first AD, put a schedule together that, that was all about, the beginning of shooting was all about building the community. It was all the scenes in the church. It was the choir singing. It was establishing our world as this really inviting, beautiful world. And I think it set up the actors to really connect to each other. So by the time we were doing more intense scenes, uh, they had the relationship. And it did feel like we had established a community. But, you know, you hope for the best. You hope you have made the right decisions. You know, I should also add that as much as David and I spent time on Zoom together, mm-hmm. we had never met. I was about to go off to Texas, and we realized we had actually never been together in the same room. Wait, so you've never, had... like, shared canapes at the Emmys or anything like that? Are you, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> so we did possible? get together and have salmon and broccoli before I went off to Texas because it's like, no, 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 we can't have just met in a Zoom box. That's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, and so you met there, and and what do you talk about? Do you talk about all the ambitions that you have for Candy's character? I mean, David, in terms of your writing process, how do you know when you're going to, like, you're like, all right, this one's ready for Leslie to check out? Well, when I'm writing, then I definitely am immersed in that world it's like that's that's where i live and in fact um when i first heard heard about the project i I initially thought no i'm not going to inhabit this for three or four months where where someone picks up an axe and kills somebody i did hear it was a, a a great story um a riveting story so i said send it to me let me read it and I read the articles in the book, as we said, and um, as disturbing as it was, I think one of the most disturbing parts of it was that I found myself feeling for Candy. Yes. And almost rooting for her, not rooting for her to pick up an axe and kill someone. Yes. But, but these wants, this yearning, uh, the holes that she was looking to fill, um, I felt for her. So... Um, and going into that um, world, the writing process, it felt like a very familiar one and yeah. a safe one and a loving one. Even knowing where the story was going to go, I felt comfortable with these people. And then when you come out of the world, then you're, you're putting on your producer hat and you're, you're, you're flexing different muscles on, okay, how do you convey this? And again, um, because of the IP material that Leslie and I are both relying on, we had a real shortcut. And also, we, uh, our, I think our communication um, connect, connectivity, if you call it that, uh, was a real um, shorthand too. We just connected right off the bat and I think we knew instantly we were seeing the same show and feeling the same people and wanting to convey the same characters. I totally echo that. I mean, I think if we were not on the same page, that would be really hard. But I think we we were very connected in this process. And even if David wasn't there by my side, we were calling each other all the time, texting all the time. I would send something from the set. It felt very connected all, all the time. Like I felt like we were partners in crime. <laughs> Interesting word choice. Or so to speak. I guess that was a bad, that was bad. No, I take that back. It's, it's Partners in storytelling. <laughs> now, and if I'm not mistaken, is this the first like true crime story this is a you know a work of of nonfiction, at least with material based in you know t- two articles and a book you you both have yes. largely worked in fiction i mean complicated female characters ensemble comedies and dramas but was there a difference in a, a certain responsibility in the fidelity of material and then how do you know when to depart from that and then how do you you two go about that yeah, That's a it's a great question. Really, yeah. Again, I resisted the project for the very uh, reasons you suggest. Why I I like to make stuff up. <laughs> I don't want to be stuck with the facts. Yeah. But then when presented with this set of facts, I thought, oh my god, this is just too juicy. Um, and in terms of the writing of it, it, 
the, the authors of the book did an excellent and thorough job. So I really felt that they took us behind the walls and the veils of these characters, which made it easier. That said, um, they were not present for a lot of scenes that were between either uh, Alan and Candy. The, the dialogue of the scenes, you, you would have to... Uh, imagine that. What we tried to do is stay very true to the story and the characters um, as we went about imagining that. Uh, anything transactional in the seven episodes, it happened. We, we didn't make up any facts. Nobody did anything that wasn't done. In terms of the um, you know, the, the words and the dialogue is how they communicated um, emotions, feelings, or um, thoughts within private scenes, yeah, we ha I, I would have to pretend and get inside the character's head and say, okay, uh, what must have this been like? How did this probably go down? And again, you just, we were very, very disciplined about trying to stay true to who these people were and what the story was. Which is amazing. And then who would talk about having an affair for several months? It's like the most unsexy, the beginning of any affair ever imaginable. But again, we would not have made that up. That's what actually happened. And there's humor in the circumstances. We never wanted to laugh at the characters. I, I want to be with and inside of the characters. I think this is a story where you laugh and you also feel anxious simultaneously. Yes. This will come to no good. You know? uh, and I, I just feel these, these characters have rich inner lives. And I, even when Candy does something horrible, I, there, I still feel for her. Now, right from the first seconds on our screen, we get Nina Simone's don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. That is a beautiful piece of music, um, probably an expensive piece of music, and one that sounds like you, it's like it's a, it's a communicating to the audience what? That this isn't going to be the true crime story you're expecting? What is it trying to tell us, and how important was that piece of music to open the series? So... For me, it was about creating a sense of the, a real sense of the environment and the world that these people lived in, and the beauty of it, and the church, and the fact that yes, you see the the beautiful fen, white picket fence, but you get up closer and the paint the paint is peeling off yes. that fence, yeah. and the beautiful piece of china, but no, there are cracks all in it. It is again what's on the surface and what's underneath, and there's something about Nina Simone's voice and the kind of gruff, you know, sense of soul underneath that just spoke to me completely. And I think to all of us, and we tried other pieces of music and we, you know, used score and we used other songs at the time. And I think David and, and our music supervising team, Robert Erdang, I think the, the, the sense of time and place because yes. of the choice of music is so real and relevant. And it just felt like the right combo. Um, yeah. This is welcome to our world. It's yes. both inviting and a little, there's something a little dangerous here. Right. It's very, very tricky. And, and we took our time with that main titles because mm. we, we wanted a piece that conveyed both beauty and decay. They're not mutually exclusive. Wow. This, this yeah. was a town um, that was very communal, that people loved living there, but it was not perfect. There, there were... Uh, there was ugliness under the beauty, and it wasn't um, belying the beauty, it was complicating it. And we wanted our main title and our song to, to sort of invite the audience to the world with that degree of complexity. So it was. we went back and forth on main titles and songs for a long time, and we felt this one kind of hit the, the colors that we wanted to convey and, and establish our community with the audience from the beginning. What I loved about episode one, and I was wondering if there's more here or if I'm just a, a geek trying to read into more, but you have Greece 
and you have Olivia Newton-John at, in, in the duality of the two Sandys. Right. And, and it was also a perfect movie to um, show the divide between Candy and Betty. Because yes. Candy, uh, Sandy would have been Candy's favorite character, and Sandy was a little offensive to Betty because um, she was a little too prurient, a little too promiscuous, a little too much out there. And, and Betty wasn't um, as open-minded and as tolerant about those kind of characters as Candy. But those were the movies of that time. Um, those were the, the, the pieces and the characters that our characters aspired to be. So it was very organic uh, to the piece and, 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 and very central to our two lead women characters. Absolutely. And I think the duality of Sandy speaks to that in some way. Yeah, it's the Madonna horde. Do you want to be the good Sandy? Do you want totally. to be the naughty Sandy? And naughty Sandy wins in the end, right? It's... She gets the guy in the end. (laughs) Yes. It's a bit of both. All right. We're introduced to these two very complicated couples in episode one. There's Candy and Pat and Alan and Betty. Each marriage has its own tensions. Can you both talk a little bit about their dynamics, particularly Candy and Pat, and how it led to the affair? Well, I think... Yeah, I think Candy and Alan, I think it was not so much about the sex because you actually, David, you wrote it so fantastically. The first time they're together in the motel, it's the best three minutes of either of their lives. <laughs> yeah. And, but I think more than the sex, they wanted to be seen and heard. They wanted someone to just listen to them. I think sharing a meal eating together, sitting on the bed, talking about what's important to them, what they're feeling, was more, they wanted a friend, a relationship. And I think they weren't seen and heard for who they were in their own marriages. And I think Pat and Candy, I mean, there's a scene that David wrote so beautifully between Pat and Candy, how Candy always wants more. Yes. And she says, yes, you're right. I want more. I want more for the kids. I want more for us. Yeah, I think they were, they were both, Betty and Candy, um, profoundly lonely people. The difference probably was Betty was lonely because Alan was gone and traveling a lot. Um, Candy was lonely in the room with Pat because she just didn't feel regarded and uh, I agree with, with Leslie. We, we talked about this. At end. I think that the affair was about wanting to be seen, wanting to be heard, wanting to feel interesting in another person's eyes because um, the mundanity of Candy's life was, was her oppression. And uh, she was either going to break free of it or, or she wasn't going to survive emotionally. Oh, mm. I mean, there's that incredible scene where... Pat Montgomery's on the sofa. Candy comes up and says, didn't you have a favorite character called Snugglepuss? And he corrects her and says, it's Snagglepuss. I'm gonna do it. You once told me that your favorite character was Snugglepuss. Did you not tell me that, babe? Snagglepuss. And you just feel it like, ugh, it's just that. Yeah. That was the impetus to start the affair. I think if he had said something different in that moment, I don't know if it would happen. We're coming to this, what seems to be like a a wonderful moment in terms of finding fulfillment between these two people in this affair. Um, And it's exciting. It's a thrilling time. And as we close, is there anything else as we go into episode two you want someone us to think about at the end of episode one? I would say things are not what they appear to be. Mm-hmm. This moment So there's more, yes, there's more to this story. So thank you both very much, David, Leslie. Thank you so much for joining us on the first episode of the Love and Death podcast. And we're going to have you back for episode four. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. This first episode is titled The Huntress. And as we see in this episode, Candy is on the hunt to have an affair when she picks up the scent of Alan Gore. And does anyone else smell trouble? Series star Elizabeth Olsen joins us to share more about the complicated and contradictory Candy Montgomery. 
Thanks for joining us on the first episode of the Love and Death podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, we're here to really talk about Candy Montgomery, the character that you're playing in the series. Yeah. She seems to be a woman who's searching for something. Yes. And the world won't relent to what she wants. Yes. So tell me how you understand Candy and, and what attracted you to play that kind of character. I think Candy lives her life very aspirationally, whether it's trying to present something aspirational or trying to grasp something that is aspirational to her. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if she's clear as to what that is exactly. Um, but what she knows is that there's a feeling she gets when she reads, whether it's romantic novels or when she thinks about her career. There's just something more to this world that she wants and she wants to feel it and she wants fireworks and she mm-hmm. and she is a she's a seeker and a doer and an optimist. Um and so that to me was such a fun way to start a character who's always looking on the bright side even though they're also trying desperately to find something greater. Yeah, and you know in this community she's pretty prominent and she's put herself sort of at the center um, of both the church and within this community itself. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about how you sort of situated her in this world. She is a gatherer and she wants to be a a community leader. Uh I think she gets she gets stimulation from being a very active mother, whether it's at school or at church. She and Pastor Jackie would travel to all these different local churches and just talk about the role of love specifically, less yeah. so about um, the the Bible itself, but more about community and love. And so she was like constantly, truly putting herself out there, um, trying to connect to people within communities and other women um, I, I think she just she could never get to she could never be tired of seeking and doing and um, being around other people like her or trying to be a source of inspiration. And so it's um, it's really interesting thinking about that personality um, that has to confront this huge tragedy mm-hmm. um and what someone does with that this person who is who seemingly <clears throat> is so upbeat and positive and um someone who puts herself out there in a really raw and vulnerable way what i like about what you're saying about candy's backstory which is featured in both the book evidence of love and in the texas monthly article is that candy is like a feminist now, did you know about any of this backstory when you got the script? And was this part of your decision-making factor and how you were going to approach the part? I knew nothing about the backstory. <laughs> I just read these scripts. And um, to when I first spoke to Leslie and David about this project, Leslie was saying that a huge reference to her tonally would be to die for. And that really informed how I thought of the scripts and the playfulness of like the dark humor in it mm-hmm. was that's through that lens is how I knew that I would also really love working with David and Leslie because because of that being a tonal inspiration. It's funny you mentioned To Die For which is you know of course starring Nicole Kidman who's a producer on this project. Yeah and so I already had this this character just from on the page that I was interested in uh, discovering and playing. Um, And it was really helpful. I really love having source material. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not... Sometimes I look at a project uh, and I just think that there is a beginning and an end. And my goal is to make everything in between make sense. And it doesn't really matter what exactly happened before and doesn't really matter what right. happens after. So mm-hmm. sometimes I approach things that way. Right. And so for when I do have source material, it ends up being this amazing um, life that I, because of actually working on this job, 
I've just de- I've decided that I need to that I actually get a lot from creating such rich backstories because I thought the specifically the book yeah um, evidence of love was so rich with her personal letters that that was the closest I could get to her and it's the only interviews that she mm-hmm. participated in mm-hmm. and so that was really the only real connection I could have to her um, from her and. I really took it all to heart without judgment. So we are offered a few clues, not necessarily in the the motive or the outcome, mm. but we're offered a few clues into what brings Candy to this point where she even wants to really explore an affair. And she says, you know, your character says, you know, I've done everything that I was supposed to do. Like, what's where's my payback? Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, maybe this is taking place in 1978, but I know a lot of women and mothers and wives feel like that. Yeah. So did that, did that when you're looking at the script and that type of dialogue, is that like, okay, that's, I, I get this. This, is, this isn't vintage material. This is resonating. Yeah, I think, the, I think what's so modern about Candy is the, she really is thinking about marriage beyond the construct of the institution (laughs) itself. And I do think that's a really modern way to, like, philosophically think about what is marriage? What is my relationship to my husband? And what am I receiving? And what is my relationship to being a woman in this world Mm -hmm. today and being a mother? She became a mother very young, and she resumed what she— She's such a dreamer, right? So I, that's also that's also a huge part of her. She, based on these letters that um, that are in the book, mm-hmm. she was dreaming of having a house. She was dreaming of having a family and a kids and settling down, and that was dream number one. And she got it. And then she was continuing to really, she really loved reading romance novels. And I think she was really hungry for whatever that feeling is that you could get from from a romantic lover that she just wasn't getting from her husband. And you, Elizabeth Olsen, are not in the position of, of cracking the case, No, right? and that's not my job either. My job is to play, is to, is to tell a story, make it entertaining as well. Right. And, um, and to defend a character. That's my job. And when you say defend a character, you mean, like, what does that mean in terms of your approach then? Is understanding her? Yeah, understanding her and... Um, understanding her with the experience that she is linearly coming, you know, having these experiences and trying to understand what leads to what leads to these moments in our lives and why we are the people we are and making the decisions that we make and not to like defend her being like this is that, you know, defend her in this situation as, you know, a third party but to understand her and try and empathize as much as possible. And that, to me, is always my goal. And, and, and I, I, I think I, I somehow always am drawn to characters that are morally con- conflicted or ambiguous or they, f- they frustrate people because they're anti-heroines. Um, and I want to understand them get behind them and trying to and try and figure out without without diagnosing how these people think and and why they do what they do even if their morality is is not in line with mine like again we're not the moral police we're here to watch the unfolding of a Mm -hmm. tragedy but i just you know, you do a brilliant job of of giving us this extra that's happening underneath her, this kind of like, even like in the way of like the feathering of the eyes that you sort of see like this person who knows there's more and mm-hmm. is like constantly being told to stop wanting more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though she's been deprived of all of the things that she probably should be afforded to have, a writing, you know, an education, those anyway. Yeah, you know? yeah. So were those things that you were thinking about? Like, I mean... I don't know if anyone's like shaking a fist as they're preparing for a role in their in a script, but how do you connect that? In, I mean, I, I think it was you really trust the writing to tell that that part of the story, and 
My first in with the character was really trying to understand what her voice was and her and her dialect. And because she grew up being kind of an army brat and living in multiple places, but she had been state like consistently in Texas for the 10 years that lead up to mm-hmm. the, these events. And based on her uh, character background and what we know of her childhood and her other relationships with boys that became her relationship with men and um and what sounds like you know she kind of had this really bubbly vivacious not bubbly but vivacious personality and you try and think of okay so then what since i don't have a voice recording of her yeah how does that relate to a woman in Texas who's going to use her femininity to get what she wants? And so you start playing with, like, the um, lyricism of this specific accent. And you start playing with your registers of your voice. Mm-hmm. And I do th- – and I think for me that becomes almost m- more informative of someone than thinking of just their, like, their wants and desires all mm-hmm. the time. It's like, how do they go through the smallest obstacles in life? How much energy do they put into things? How f- quickly do they walk? Like, how quickly do they talk? And and to me, that's what really started to um, build build candy and made it. That was, like, my... And, how you know, how she would hold herself. And I, I'm kind of someone who, like, caves in and hunches a lot, and I try and um, become a bit more masculine from my own childhood of wanting to like be taken seriously or whatever. And so um and so I see I saw her differently and to put that in your body, that to me is almost more informative than knowing that she feels like she what her actual wants and desires sure. are. Right. Gotta, gotta, gotta. Oh, oh. <gasps> are you okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. Are you sure? Are you okay? I'm fine. Good. Okay. You don't want to sit for a bit? No, I'm fine, Alan. I'm fine. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Sorry, I got to communicate. <laughs> what do you mean, he smelled like sex? Oh, yeah. I mean, he smelled like sex. Are we talking about the same Alan Gordon? <laughs> oh, yeah. I know, but how a man looks and smells can be two totally different things. Plus. Plus what? Well, I was kind of getting the sense that he was lacking the smell of me, too. Like I could maybe go in that direction. All right, so there's another really important sort of abstract detail for viewers in episode one. What is the catalyst isn't something that you see or hear. It's something that Candy smells on the volleyball court (laughs) with Ellen Gore, which is like one of the strangest meat cutes, like stank meat cutes I've ever heard of. And so like (laughs) Candy wants fireworks. She gets Ellen Gore. Mm -hmm. In terms of fireworks, he's a little bit of a damp book of matches I mean right (laughs) or am I like how do you how does that how does her desire match up with what she gets so I um I I have a really obsessive sense of smell (laughs) personally like I smells are crazy for me Uh I go through the world overwhelmed by smells all the time and I, if she felt like she smelled like their pheromones would do magical things, I trust it, you know, <laughs> and I'm just going to lean in, lean in and let that be her guide. <laughs> Were there any like weird conversations like, all right, so Alan Gore would smell like, I don't know, uh, um, Old Spice. <laughs> Is like 1970s hamburger helper. Like I, I, don't I think know. it's I think it's more of a like skin thing, like uh-huh. what people's skins smell like to other people. And I, being an actress, I've had to smell people that I'm not in a romantic relationship <laughs> with, and I can tell based on how they smell whether or not I would want to be romantically involved with them. That's interesting. But that might sound weird, but I've had those experiences. Before. It's chemistry, right? Yeah, and there's some. So I just I take it at face value that she was like, "Oh my god, the way he smells," and it did something to her, and it turned her on. And so I just I'll just 
go with it. I also also sort of shows you Candy's like openness, right? Like yeah. she just has this metabolism to try and like take things in quickly and understand them and respond to them really quickly. Yes. Sure. Alan, have you never been French kissed before? You've never had a woman's tongue in your mouth. I think you're gonna quite like it. Now, let's carry that sense of smell into the <laughs> Continental Motel, hotel yes. scenario. And, you know, when you're telling me, like, oh, I'm going to get, like, a sex scene from the late 70s, like, like you know, um, that's going to be, like, rippling satin sheets. We're going to get, like, like the Vaseline lens. There's going to be some wa- guitar wah-wah pedal, yeah. maybe. That is not the sex that we get in no. this show. No, it's not. So when you read the script, was it, like... Most awkward sex happens of all time here. <laughs> <laughs> no, what we what we really every single um, sexual moment that they share, Jesse, Leslie, and I kind of created a title of each of each event. And there's a huge reversal we felt in the first time they see each other. That based on how David wrote wrote the dialogue. That all of a sudden, Candy is now starting to backtrack and mm-hmm. not feel so brave. And it gives Alan the opportunity to stand up in a way that maybe he hasn't yet so far in their affair or their attempt at an affair or their planning of an affair. Right. And so that's where we started. And we also were talking about these people, you know, there's not like a lot of like porn on the internet, you know, like there's, it's not that time. She, I think to go back to what David wrote, he always in detail talked about the state of the food, whether the food was fully eaten and put away. Um, they had they ate all the the only thing that was out was dessert, so that means they ate the full meal beforehand. And so it was really about the food determining their comfort whether or not when they should have sex. Well, and it's even a prop because she has this great moment where she holds up the chicken leg. You hold up the chicken leg and you're like, I'm feeling like this. And it's like, oh, she's nervous too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's so many funny like high school kinds of moments when it comes to intimacy between the two of them. And so we leaned in on that, that they started to feel more brave and sexy and, you know, the – the clothes started coming off a bit more as they got more comfortable, even though they showered, but that felt different than mm-hmm. wearing her, like, you know, favorite lingerie pieces, which are full gowns. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we talked about the progression in that way of their intimacy, which is also um, about their intimacy as friends, because sometimes they would just meet up and never have sex. They would just talk the whole time. Um which says a lot about yeah. what the affair was, I think. Um, and then, you know, at the same time, when we see Candy having sex with her husband, she's naked because that's what she does with her husband. Um, so we wanted there to be a clear difference of what kind of intimacy she has in right. her marriage and not make it just about this, like, really hot, sexy, steamy love affair because it really didn't sound like that to us. Well, no, and it seems like, I mean, there's almost... Your heart kind of breaks because Alan um, has never, like, French kissed anyone before. Mm-hmm. And, and Candy is very, I think, um, just approaches that in a really beautiful way, right? Yeah, with, yeah, being like, kind. Kind. And, yeah. And, I, and hearing that or reading that, they're obviously not having wild sex. No. He's never French kissed a woman before. That's right. And so you have to, you know, you're telling, you're not. And so he's having the best time of his life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, missionary. Um, so, so that's really how we were, that's how we spoke about it. And that's how we kind of designed their affair. Well, and I think what makes me even sort of more upset for Candy, we're looking at it from this very compassionate point of view, is that she's like, Oh, this guy's only got so much potential. And I'm still cooking the food and I'm still like, you know, making the desserts and bringing the wine and taking care of all this shit. But he still has the most perfectly shaped penis <laughs> she has ever seen. That is, I was like, is that like late 70s BDE? <laughs> Alan had BDE this whole time. <laughs> when they talked about that, I was like, damn, they're really saying that. Yeah. <laughs> And and yes, yeah, so you know there is that for her too. 
She had some great sex. It didn't have to do much. (laughs) Well, on that note, thank you so much, Elizabeth Olsen, for joining us on episode one of the Love and Death podcast. There is a lot more ahead, and we're excited to see where the series takes us. It was great to be here. I really loved talking about it in this form. Thank you. We'll hear from Elizabeth Olsen again in a future episode. Since Love and Death is such a Texas story and was adapted from the pages of Texas Monthly back in the 80s, we thought it'd be fun to close out each episode of the podcast with a segment called Only in Texas, featuring an editor from Texas Monthly. For this first run, our expert, or expert, if you will, executive editor Skip Hollinsworth. Skip has been with the magazine for 34 years and is one of the most prolific true crime writers of our time, including the author of the best-selling book, Midnight Assassin. He's also a journalistic hero of mine. So, may I officially welcome you to the Love and Death Companion podcast, Skip Hollinsworth, executive editor of Texas Monthly. Let's kick things off by talking about Texas Monthly and the magazine's legacy in true crime storytelling, especially with long-form features like the original Love and Death in Silicon Prairie piece that ran all the way back in 1984. 84. But we had crime stories running 50 years ago. It's always since 1973. Uh-huh. It's always been part of the Texas Monthly canon is that writers love to go out and do true crime stories. Back then, when we were when they were first kicking them off, they called it nonfiction crime, mm-hmm. not true crime. And the writers all loved to sort of outdo one another with the flashiest, <laughs> showiest, most prurient uh, magazine story they could find. And it's, you know, we had a tremendous array of diverse stories. There, from some of the older writers that are long gone now, retired, or moved on to the laptop in the sky. <laughs> we wanted to find a story with lots of content, mm-hmm. something to the story that's not just about the crime, something that's not just tawdry, but has something to say about the people in Texas and the way they lived and the different types of people there were. So we, you know, Texas always produces these great characters, yeah, from Bonnie and Clyde to Lee Harvey Oswald to... Uh, a hitman that killed a federal judge. We just have, you know, there's always a debate as to why so many Texas stories are so interesting when it comes to true crime. Yes. And is it because we just have so many people? Is it because we're still connected to the frontier a little bit? Yeah. Is it because we have a wild, there's a lot of us that have a wild streak in us? I don't have the answer. And I've been asked this question for at least 40 years. Yeah is what is it that makes us love true crime stories? And it just could be because we have a prurient nature and we love stories that um, cut beneath the surface. You know, I think a lot of of our lives, and and this has to do with the stories that Jim Atkinson and John Bloom wrote, but a lot of our lives are carefully cut out. They are, we keep our passions sort of subdued. Mm. We don't let anything bubble to the top. Uh, we just sort of live normal, normal lives. And so when someone steps across the line and does things that you just cannot fathom happening, like Candy Montgomery, yep. then it takes on this kind of mythic element. And people are dying to try to find out why did this person succumb to such an act of violence, whatever that act is. Now, you've been executive editor of Texas Monthly, and you've been like the shoe leather reporter for a long time. And one of the reasons why Texas Monthly true crime stories are so successful is long form. It's the source material for this series. It comes down to the reporting. So I understand you didn't write the source material for this series, but tell me just as uh, as a journalist, how you approach the reporting for something like this. How important are the relationships and the access to someone like Candy Montgomery for us to get this point of view that I don't think any other article or book had? Then the same with your work. I think a lot of people underestimate how difficult it is to write a good true crime story. Yeah. You've basically got to live with the people that are involved, 
whether it's a hard-boiled detective or an eccentric defense attorney or a, um, a haunted victim. So that's why a lot of true crime that you read sort of seems one-dimensional because the writer just doesn't have the time or hasn't been given the time to get as in-depth with the characters as possible. You, the true crime stories are driven not by the crime, but by the characters. Yeah. And that's why it's important. That, that's why Texas Monthly has always been a little different because it allows its writers to go disappear for months <laughs> trying to cover one of these crime stories. Well, let me ask you this, Skip. After all these years of reporting on all these stories, what still intrigues you about reporting a piece, finding a story, or even watching and listening to podcasts and TV series about these subjects? The other day in Fort Worth, or a few months ago in Fort Worth, a older man was arrested on DNA evidence and accused of doing... Uh, of committing a murder that was infamous in Fort Worth in the early 1970s, mid-1970s. And I went to the prison to see him driving all the way down there after he had been convicted, thinking, why am I doing another one of these stories? (laughs) And he, there had been rumors that he might have killed before. And he began telling me about he says, I didn't kill the girl in that brown dress. And I went, what brown dress? <sighs> and he was talking about another murder. And in his old age, he had gotten the two co- confused and conflated. Wow. And he was telling me about a different murder than the murder I'd come to see him for. And I sat there and I went, this is why I do this. What happened to the girl in the brown dress? What did he do about it? And that story has still not emerged yet, but I think someday it will. Oh, my God. I'm getting like my pulse is quickening at what the future of this piece is going to be. Um, Thank you so much, Skip Hollinsworth, for appearing on the Love and Death podcast. It's been great having you. Appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Skip. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the official Love and Death podcast. We'll be back on April 28th for episode two with Jesse Plemons and Lily Rabe, who offer some great marriage advice and terrible sex tips in their roles as Betty and Alan Gore. See you next time. Our executive producers are Maddie Builder and Aaron Kubatsky. This episode is also written and produced by me, Nancy Miller. Brian Standifer is our audio engineer, editor, and mixer. Music is courtesy of Warner Media, HBO Max, and Brian Standifer. Special thanks to David Ertzua at Studio Awesome. Watch Love and Death now on HBO Max.